The Old Testament lesson for the 16th Sunday after Trinity is from 1 Kings chapter 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the seventh chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. In our lessons this morning, we have a preview of life in the resurrection. We have a preview of life in the kingdom of God, in Christ Jesus. We see it, obviously, in the gospel lesson as Jesus raises the son of that poor widow, the widow of Nain. But we see it all the way going back to the story of Elijah. Raising the son of the woman, uh, the widow of Zarephath, raising him from the dead. We see this going all the way back to the Old Testament. In fact, it's one of the ways that the Bible describes the work of the prophets, that God has given them to sort of preview the life of resurrection. So here's how the writer to the Hebrews describes the prophets. He says, Time would fail me to tell of all of the glories, all of the good things, the deeds of the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep 
and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. The prophets did mighty deeds, preaching God's word to anyone who would listen. And God's word for anyone who would listen was life and salvation. And even when the prophets suffered, when they were martyred, when they were killed for testifying to the truth, even then they were faithful because they put their hope in the resurrection. That was true especially of Elijah and his successor, Elisha. It's almost like in the books of First and Second Kings, that wherever these prophets go, there's life radiating from around them. So they come, Elijah comes to the widow of Zarephath, and we heard last week how her jars of oil and flour did not go empty, even though there was a famine. And today she raises, he raises the widow's son. The prophet Elisha raises the dead as well. And in fact, even in Elisha's death, his bones are laid in a grave. And somebody falls into the grave, injured and dying. And because he touches Elisha's bones, he is made well. It's like life radiates from these prophets. But there is something distinct, and it's pretty obvious, a difference between those prophets and Jesus himself. As much as life radiated from the prophets of Elijah and Elisha by means of God's word and his promises, how much more, how much more does life radiate from Jesus himself? This is how the writer to the Hebrews finishes his praise of the prophets. He says, all of these, though they were commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That better thing is Jesus himself, who in our gospel lesson today shows you what radiating life looks like. Here he comes into this town. And at the gate of the town, there's a procession, a procession of death. And Jesus does some astounding things in our gospel lesson. But the most astounding at first is simply this, that he interrupts the procession. Can you imagine? We're having a funeral and we're making our way out to the cemetery And somebody comes along and stops the procession. Cut it out. Don't go to the cemetery. Don't bury that body. Everybody's mourning. Everyone's grieving. And this person just interrupts our process. That's what Jesus has done today. But notice what he does. He interrupts that procession of death so that he can turn it into a procession of life. Because wherever Jesus goes, he brings life with him. Wherever he comes, he cleans up whatever is soiled. He resurrects what is dead. He forgives what has been done wrong. He brings life to those who will have it, to those who will hear and believe. But notice this. Jesus comes into the town of Nain and he raises this one widow's son. Something that he did not do for every widow. He did not raise every dead person, not even every dead person that he met, but only a few. So long as Jesus is walking around Judea and Galilee, so long as he is radiating life with his life, with his presence, there's something lacking. Because it is only in his crucifixion, in his death, and in his resurrection that life goes to the whole world. That's what's missing from the response of the people in our gospel lesson this morning. You heard them at the end of the lesson. They said, this is amazing. A great prophet has risen among us. God has indeed visited his people, but they are satisfied to see one miracle. They have no idea. They can't even picture 
what is coming for the whole world, for the life of the world. To see how that works out, I want to point out to you today the four ways in our lessons, four ways that Jesus confronts everything that has gone wrong with this world. The four ways that he confronts and begins to undo the things that are broken in this world so that he can point everyone to our hope, to our salvation, his death on the cross. It begins with this, that he meets the sorrow of those who are grieving. That's true both in our Old Testament lesson and in our gospel. These poor women who have lost their sons. It's tragic when anyone dies, but even more tragic to lose a child. And here Jesus meets them in their sorrow, and he confronts their sorrow. But notice how, how stunning it is, how surprising it is. It's kind of like last week when Jesus said to all of you, don't worry, as if you could just decide not to worry. He says to this poor widow in Nain, Jesus says, do not weep. And I kind of want to go, yeah, fat chance of that. Her son is dead. How can she not weep? How can those words, do not weep, how can they be comforting in the face of of this kind of sorrow. What good are words like that? I think our sense of that, our sense of the frailty of words, comes because our words cannot provide any real comfort. I think we recognize that when we face grief or tragedy in other people's lives. Maybe you suffer this very same thing. You just don't know what to say. What can you say to someone who is in sorrow or in grief? What can you say? In fact, you cannot say anything to take away their sorrow. You can't say anything to change the facts of their grief. And so our words, they kind of go out and they fall flat on the floor. And very often when we try to provide comfort, it's actually we're just trying to comfort ourselves. We're trying to get around our uncomfortable feelings about the situation. And so our words fall flat on the floor because they're empty. We can't comfort with our words but as with last week, when Jesus says to you, do not be anxious, do not worry, Jesus' words are different because they are founded in realities. They're founded in fact. It's like the comfort that is proclaimed by the prophet Isaiah. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Why? Because the battle has ended. Because the war is over. Because there has been peace won. That's the message of Isaiah. That's the message that the prophet brings to the people of Jerusalem. Peace has been won for you by your God. So when Jesus says, do not weep, it's not just a wish. It's not just to make him feel a little bit more comfortable about the situation. It's because there is, in fact, a reason to stop weeping. There's a reason to be hopeful, a reason, in fact, in this situation for that poor widow to rejoice. And it is this. That the one who kills and makes alive, the one who created the world, the one who breathed life into that young man in the first place, he is here. And if he breathed life in the first place, he can certainly do it again. And in fact, that's the promise. He will. That's what he's here to do. So Jesus confronts this kind of sorrow, and he confronts it with substance, in reality, not with faint hopes or dreams or well wishes, but with his very own life. And he also confronts something that is a little bit foreign to us. He confronts, in our gospel lesson, uncleanness. So you may be familiar with this, but in the Old Testament, God gave laws to the people of Israel to separate them from the rest of the world. And the laws governed things like cleanness and uncleanness. But it wasn't just about getting dirt on your body. It had to do with whether or not you came into contact with things like death. So if you were responsible for burying a dead body, 
You would have to carry that body to a grave, but then you would have to take seven days to cleanse yourself before you could go back to the sanctuary, go back to the tabernacle to worship God. Touching a dead body made a person unclean. God gave these rules about cleanness to show the separation between God and humanity, that there's a gulf between a perfect, righteous, holy God and sinful, fallen creatures like you and me. So God told the people to mind their uncleanness, and if they touched a dead body, they needed to be cleansed. They needed to purify themselves. But did you see what Jesus did in our gospel lesson? He walked right up to this casket. He said to the woman, do not weep, and then he reached out and touched the dead body. He didn't wait for them to bring the child to him. He didn't wait for them to wash it up, that dead body, and make it presentable. He dove in to the depths of uncleanness. He took himself into the midst of impurity. He made himself unclean so that he could rescue this young man from the grave, which is really just a sliver, in fact, of what Jesus is willing to do for you and me. But it is profound. It would have been scandalous to all of the Jews standing around watching this. It would have been scandalous that Jesus willfully made himself unclean, that he soiled himself and exempted himself from the life of worship. I think this is another reason why this is kind of foreign to us. We take it for granted that we can come to church whenever we want. We can come to church and receive God's blessings whenever we please. It's always available to us. But it wasn't always so. Even just in the course of routine life, you would become unclean and then you couldn't go to the sanctuary of God. You couldn't offer your sacrifices and you couldn't receive his blessings. We should take that more seriously. We should take it more seriously that God has come and made you clean so that now you don't have to worry about whether you've touched a dead body or not. You don't have to worry about what may or may not make you unclean because you can always come into God's presence to receive his forgiveness. Jesus stops the funeral. He touches the coffin. He touches the dead man. He makes himself unclean. And everybody watches as then he walks up to that dead body and he does something that looks insane. He speaks to a dead man. This is the third thing that Jesus confronts in our lesson. He confronted sorrow and he confronted uncleanness. And now, much more relevant to you and me, he confronts death. He meets it head on. It's like a, it's like a car accident. You have this funeral of death and you have this procession of life and they collide with one another. Jesus stops it in his tracks and he speaks impossibly to a dead man. Dead men cannot hear. Dead men cannot sit up and walk. And yet that's exactly what Jesus' words effect. These are the words, and this is the reason why his statement to the widow earlier, do not weep, why it carries weight. Because when Jesus speaks, when he breathes out promises, they are fulfilled. Even when he says to the dead man, rise up, his words are effective. This is exactly what the prophets have longed for, for a cure to death. That's the frailty, that's the failure of Elijah and Elisha. They died. They couldn't carry on a ministry. They couldn't carry on radiating life into the world because they died. It's the problem that confronts all of us, most of all. But in our Old Testament lesson, we are clued in to something dreadfully important. Pay close attention to this. 
The widow of Zarephath, when she recognizes that her son has died, did you hear what she said? She kind of accused the prophet Elijah. She said, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. You have come to bring my sin to remembrance. Death is a problem all on its own, but the bigger problem with death is this. It brings our sin to remembrance. The only reason any of us, the only reason anyone in the world dies is because of sin. Sin is the more fundamental problem. There is a sense in which if Jesus deals with sorrow, and if he deals with uncleanness, and he deals with death, but he does not deal with sin, we're all lost. Then he would have just raised this poor son of that widow to die again, and then eternally. If Jesus doesn't deal with sin, then we will always be burdened in our hearts by the things that we have done in the past. It should bother you when you are confronted with tragedy, when you are confronted with death, when you're confronted with loss and grief. It should bother you that all of this is because of sin. That everything we suffer in this life, everything that's broken and gone wrong with this world is because of sin. It is our fault and no one else's. So even if you've forgotten the sins of your past, they are called to mind by death, by tragedy. Imagine this poor widow. She lived among Gentiles. And who knows what kind of sin she was thinking about in her past. I was kind of going through a list of possibilities. Maybe it was something really grievous, like previously she had worshipped false gods and she had given up other children in sacrifice to those gods. Now, God has taken away this son because my sin has been called to remembrance. Maybe it was something really trifling, like she stole from the cookie jar when she was a kid, and now this has been burdening her her whole life long, and God is calling it to remembrance. It doesn't matter. Her sin, her sin is weighing on her, and there is no cure for it, but only the memory of it, the constant reminder of it. And now, this constant reminder is brought to a head as she looks at her dead son. Surely, this is because of my sin, she says. Elijah doesn't correct her. He doesn't say, oh no, you had nothing to do with this. He doesn't stop her from thinking that. But he does, by raising that son from the dead and by his preaching of a God who loves sinners and who is sending his son to save them from sin and death, he shows her that there is a cure, a remedy for sin. Because, in fact, she needs to be reminded of her sin. We all need to be reminded of our sin. We all need to see death in our lives so that we do not forget our sin so that when God comes to us in mercy, when he pours out his abundant blessings on us, when he says to you, to you personally, I've sent my son to die for you, to pour out his blood, to forgive you all your sins, then you see it as hope. Then you receive it as mercy. Then you receive it as blessings in abundance. Jesus has come most of all to deal with sin. That is why, while the world wants churches always to preach about relevant, topical things, the church never stops preaching about sin. The church never stops preaching about sin because sin is our core problem. And the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible from beginning to end is God rescuing us from sin. And this At long last, this is how our gospel lesson and our Old Testament lesson are previews of the resurrection. While the people are acclaiming Jesus and saying, 
a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people, they have no idea. They've seen the tip of the iceberg. But you and I, we are privileged to see the whole story complete. God's salvation complete in Christ Jesus, who not only died on the cross, pouring out his blood for you, but then rose from the grave. And now even today, and next week, and the week after that, and day after day after day of this life, says to you, your sins are forgiven. Life is for you. Remain near Jesus, from whom life radiates. Remain near to Jesus, who has come near to you. In your sorrow and your uncleanness and in your death and in your sin, even your sin, he has come near to you to bring you with him into the resurrection. Hold fast to him. Never let go of him. Listen to him. Hope in what he promises you. Hope in forgiveness and salvation. Because hope in him is sure. He has never once, he has never once lied to you. And he says to you, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. God alone be all glory now and forever. Amen.